0: What if? Two words that people tend to use in uncertain times. What if I can't find a job? What if it's cancer? What if my wife doesn't come back? What if my sick child dies? And at this particular moment in the world, it seems that what-ifs are everywhere. Some what-ifs are medical. What if I get the coronavirus? What if my family member who's among the vulnerable population gets it? What if someone I love goes to the hospital for some unrelated issue and I can't be there with them? What if? I can't see my grandmother again before she dies. What if the curve is flattened, life returns to normal, and then the curve inflates? Some what-ifs are medical. Some what-ifs are financial. What if I lose my job? What if our savings doesn't hold out? What if my 401K evaporates What if the economy collapses? And then churches like ours, what if if our church budget ends up shrinking because of all of this and we can't do ministry like we have? What if missionaries have to come off the field because support dries up? What if we're making a bigger deal out of this virus than we should? What if we're not taking this virus seriously enough? You see, what-ifs tend to lean in to fear. We see the things we what-if about as dangers, as threats, threats to our health, that threats to our well-being, to our desires, to our stability, to our security, to our families, to our careers, to our way of life as we know it. What if the worst happens? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, the Apostle Paul, deals with a what if, the most significant what if that a human being can ask. What if Christ has not been raised from the dead? About a century ago, German theologian Rudolf Bultmann answered that question by basically saying, we can't really know whether Christ was raised from the dead, but it doesn't matter anyway. The apostles called Jesus the risen Lord, and that's what matters, because the Christian faith is built on what the apostles preached, not what actually happened. But is that true? True. Does it not matter that Jesus rose from the dead? Does it only matter that the apostles preached about a risen Lord? Well, let's hear what the apostle himself says. We'll read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 22. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 22. the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's pray. Father, we come now to Your Word to consider the most significant event in human history, that on which our faith is based. And we pray that You will assure us once again of its truth, of its significance, of its centrality. I pray for those who may be watching who are not Christians, that, Lord, You would help them to understand that Christianity is not a set of morals to follow. It is a risen Savior to follow that we don't trust in our own morality, we trust in Him. Help us now by Your Spirit to understand what Your Word says for Your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Corinth is an influential city in the Roman Empire. It's a wealthy city, it's a city of entertainment, a city of sport, it's a religious city. It's home to the temple of Aphrodite, goddess of love, and all the pagan worship that goes along with that. And Paul addresses several problems in uh, this letter. He addresses several uh, moral problems in particular, and now he is going to address a theological problem, theological doubts. You see, the problem is doubts have arisen in the church questioning whether anyone could be raised from the dead. So that this church may say, I believe that Jesus was raised on the third day, but then they walk around saying, well, I don't know if anybody can really be raised from the dead. Now, it's possible this crept into the church through the philosophy of the day, particularly through the philosophy of someone like Plato, who would have found the idea of these bodies being resurrected as a ridiculous and repugnant notion. But wherever the doubts originated, they're here. And Paul addresses them not because he just loves to get in philosophical debates late at night, like many of us did when we were in college. Uh, Paul addresses it because ideas have consequences. Now, maybe you are a teenager, maybe you are a college student, and you hear that. You need to hear that. Ideas have consequences. The doubts that you don't deal with, the ideas that you entertain, that you think are unique, or you like them just because it's not what your parents think and you want to go against the grain, please know that those ideas have consequences. And some of those consequences are quite devastating. They are in this case, which is why Paul goes on to tell them what the consequences of this idea of no resurrection, what they really are. He carries them out to their logical conclusion right there in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised." Maybe that connection hadn't even been made in the minds of the Corinthians yet. But that's the case. If no one is raised from the dead, then not even Jesus has been raised. And so Paul wants to underline the fact that without the resurrection of Jesus, Christian faith falls apart. Your Christian faith, my Christian faith, the Christian faith falls apart without the resurrection of Jesus. So let's just think about this. Under this first heading, if Christ has not been raised. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 14. If Christ has not been raised. What if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? What if his Skeleton is still in a tomb somewhere? What if somebody stole the body? What if the women went to the wrong tomb? Well, that idea has consequences, and Paul lays out six of them. Six things that would be true if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Consequence number one is in verse 14 preaching is worthless. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Now, some might object to that. They say, well, wait a second. You can still preach Christ. You can preach about His teachings, His moral example, His example of love and of kindness. After all, isn't that what the world really needs is more love and kindness? Isn't that enough? Well, friend, if moral teaching... And moral examples are enough Then, to put it frankly, we don't need Jesus. We don't need the New Testament at all. Because in the Old Testament, we have morality taught. We have it laid out in the law, what it looks like to be a moral and just person, to love your neighbor as yourself, to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. We have moral examples in the Old Testament, some good and some quite awful. But that's apparently not enough because, in Paul's mind, to preach Christ, you can't actually say you're preaching Christ unless you preach that he is raised from the dead. So that's what in verse 12 he starts that way. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. Now, of course, Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and what Paul means is he can't be proclaimed any other way. You see, Paul and the other apostles are not merely preachers. They are witnesses. Their preaching is a report and explanation of what they've seen, namely, the risen Christ in the flesh. And in our day, today... Preaching Christ means saying what the apostles said. My preaching rests on their witness. In some ways, my preaching is their witness, echoing through the ages into your home even now that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. But if Christ hasn't been raised... Friend, I am wasting my life. Wasting it. And so is every other preacher concerned to preach Jesus Christ faithfully. And you are wasting a perfectly good Sunday morning listening to it. That's the consequence. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, preaching is worthless. But also, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then our faith is useless. That's what he goes on to say in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then he says it again in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Without the resurrection, faith has no benefit, it is hollowed out, it is empty. Underlying that statement is, that, is this truth, that faith is not what so many people say it is today, that faith is just blind, that it is just a leap in the dark. But as one pastor has said, all you get from a leap in the dark is a broken ankle. Christian faith isn't blind faith. It's based on the historical reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Well, while the weather seems to be teasing us back and forth, spring is upon us, and as the weather very slowly warms up, uh, we have some return guests at our home, guests that come back every spring. Uh, They are spiders. And every morning and every evening, we will find a new web spun in the sliding glass door frame out at the back of our house. And if you, don't, if you don't notice it with your eyes, you will notice it soon enough with your face when you walk right through it. Now, I want you to imagine a larger spider web, one, one that strings from the gutter of your home to the ground, and it's intricately woven. It looks quite strong. In fact, you convince yourself it is strong you believe it. You believe it so much that you're not going to get out the ladder to clean out the gutters this year. You are just going to climb the spider web to get up to the gutter and clean it out. Now, will it work? Of course not. It's not because you don't sincerely convince yourself that it must be true. It's because what you think must be true is actually not true. You see, the effectiveness of Christian faith isn't found in the sincerity of our faith. The effectiveness of Christian faith is found in the object of our faith. And friends, if our faith is in a good man who is dead... If our faith is in a prophet who is dead, if our faith is in a good moral teacher who is dead, then we may as well try to climb a spider web to heaven because that faith is useless. But it gets worse The third consequence, not only is uh, preaching worthless and faith useless, the third consequence is that the apostles are liars. Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Now, misrepresenting God there is a word Uh, is the word pseudo-martyrs, which means false witnesses. In the account of Jesus' trial, it's used to talk about the crew of liars that the religious leaders assembled to hurl false accusations at the Lord. And Paul says, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead and the apostles are going around saying that He is, then they're liars. And me standing here saying that He is, I'm no better I'm just lying. But the implication of the apostles being a liar is huge, okay? Imagine a coworker. All right? Imagine you have a co-worker who has the habit of lying about their work, maybe lying about how much they get done, lying about how much they actually work, lying about whether they're on Facebook during work, lying about whatever, okay? Do you think then, if they have this habit of lying in one area of life, that it is more difficult to believe them in all the other areas of life? I think it is. I mean, I think if you're going to them, going with them over lunch and then they begin to talk about their home life and how all the problems at home are about their wife or about their husband or about whatever it is, it becomes hard to believe because you've heard them lie so much. So here are the apostles preaching that Christ has been raised from the dead, but if they're lying about that, don't you wonder what else they might be lying about? And just as a reminder, every word in the New Testament is written by the apostles or by their colleagues. If they're lying, how much of the New Testament can we actually trust? If Christ hasn't been raised and the apostles are liars, then we may as well throw the New Testament in the garbage. You see how serious this idea is? Consequence one, preaching is worthless. Consequence two, our faith is useless. Consequence three, the apostles are liars. And then consequence four, our sin remains. Verse 17... If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Well, now, how can that be? Because when we talk about the forgiveness of sin, we don't typically talk about the resurrection. We talk about the cross. We talk about, the, isn't, it, isn't it the death of Jesus that forgives us of our sin? Does His resurrection really matter all that much for our forgiveness? Well, apparently in the mind of the Apostle Paul it does because in Romans 4.25, he says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. That means He died for them. And raised for our justification. Now, justification is a twofold declaration of not guilty. It means that we are forgiven of sin and counted righteous. Righteous. And Paul says Jesus was raised for our justification. In other words, yes, His death is for our sin, but His resurrection is God's way of publicly declaring that Jesus' death is sufficient to justify us. It is sufficient to forgive all our sin. Without the resurrection, there is no divine stamp of approval on Jesus' death. And that would mean His death didn't accomplish our forgiveness. I mean, forgiveness is one of the great promises of the Bible. That God will no longer remember our sins against us. But that promise without the resurrection... That sweet promise loses its substance. One pastor, R.A. Torrey, said this, "...without the resurrection, the death of Christ was only the heroic death of a noble martyr." And if that is the case, we are still in sin. Our sin remains. As the Bible says it, we are in slavery to sin. We have not been set free from sin." sin still easily entangles and drags us downward. The presence of sin, the power of sin, the penalty of sin, none of it is affected if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. Consequence five, God's wrath remains. Look at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, this falling asleep is a way to speak about those who've died. It doesn't mean they are just unconscious. This isn't soul sleep, as some speak of it. This is a euphemism for death. And these who have died are said to be in Christ, in verse 18. They have listened to the apostles' preaching. They've put their faith in in Jesus and they have died expecting eternal life. But if Jesus isn't raised from the dead then as we've seen uh, the apostles lied to them, their faith is useless and they went to the grave still in their sins. Which means that the only thing that they can expect from a holy God is His wrath. You see the word perished here doesn't just mean that they've died. It's Paul's word for eternal punishment. If you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where we read this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Now, notice the contrast. The contrast is between those, is between those who find the cross uh, who are perishing... Those who are perishing, meaning they are heading for eternal judgment. They are headed for the wrath of God. And then on the other side, but then there are those who are being saved. Okay? So there are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Those who are perishing are headed for the wrath of God. If Jesus is still in the grave, then our Christian friends who have died are suffering God's wrath right now. And those of us who will die, which is all of us, will also face God's wrath when we die. Preaching is worthless if Christ isn't raised from the dead. Faith is useless if Christ isn't raised from the dead. The apostles are liars if Christ isn't raised from the dead. We're still, we, our sin remains if Christ isn't raised from the dead. And God's wrath awaits us if Christ isn't raised from the dead. The last consequence that Paul mentions is in verse 19, and it's basically the fact that Christians are Pitiful. Pitiful. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Hope, no matter how you use it, hope is an expectation of good in the future. And Christian hope is a confident expectation, an expectation that is based on God's faithfulness and not just some kind of fanciful wish that we have. So, what Paul is saying is that without Jesus' resurrection, the only thing waiting for us in the future is death and God's judgment. The only thing we can try to hope for is in this life. We just kind of hope God will give us a good life, Hope hope God will give us a life we feel like we deserve, hope will make a difference in the world. Well, it's good to make a difference in people's lives. It's good to do good. But if that is the extent of our hope, that Paul says we're pitiful. It's no hope at all. Clinging to that false hope means that we are deceived. And Paul's right, deceived and deluded people, which we would be. They're not enviable, they're pitiable. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead and you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ right at this moment, you are pitiful. So just think about all that one more time. If Christ hasn't been raised then preaching is worthless, faith is useless, the apostles are liars, our sin remains, God's wrath awaits, and we are pitiful. If this what-if is true, then the church should just pack it up right now, close its doors, bulldoze the buildings, and get on with something else. Or as Paul puts it in verse 32, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. None of it matters if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead ideas have consequences and these consequences are devastating in the very next verse Paul addresses every single bit of it he pops the bubble of skepticism in the church at Corinth with one word one strong word, one sharp word, one precious and sweet word. And it is the word, but. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. That gives us our second heading, but Christ has been raised. You see, because Christ has been raised, every devastating consequence that we just imagined, that Paul just laid out for us, is reversed. Preaching isn't worthless. It's powerful. It gives life. It gives hope. It gives help because it points us to a risen and living Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith isn't useless because the object of our faith isn't the figment of our imagination. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected, risen. The apostles aren't liars. When the apostles say Christ is risen, it's the report of what they've seen with their own eyes. So when Paul says this in verse 20, when he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, you shouldn't imagine that this is an argument between preschoolers, okay? You know how arguments between preschoolers go. No, he hasn't. Yes, he has. No, he hasn't. Yes, he has. No, he has I mean, this kind of back and forth. Paul is not just saying words that refute. He has seen the Lord Jesus Christ with His own eyes. That's actually why we have all of this in verses 3 to 8. So listen, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and then the historical proof. Okay, that is a statement of faith. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Historical proof that He died, very next phrase, He was buried. Then, next part of the Christian faith, this article of faith that Christ has, was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And the historical proof is He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The implication is, I mean, it's kind of implied here, what, just go ask them. You don't want to listen to me? Okay, that's a mistake, but you just go ask them, any one of these 500 folks. Then he appeared to James... Then to all the apostles, you see, it's not just the religious leaders. It's not just it was. It's not just the people who were on the inside when Jesus uh, uh, was on the earth that are now saying, "Oh, he's risen from the dead. We didn't give our lives to nothing. Really, he's raised from the dead. Believe us. Believe us." No, 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 no. Jesus appears to more than five hundred people. But you'll remember at the beginning of the book of Acts, how many disciples are praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend. Only 120. Jesus Christ has appeared to more than even those who are in this upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as, one, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. They didn't make it up. They didn't hallucinate it. They didn't give their lives for a lie. Nobody will do that. Nobody stole the body. I mean, the religious leaders tried to circulate that lie. The women didn't go to the wrong tomb. Right before Mark chapter 16, at the very tail end of Mark chapter 15, it says that two of the women saw where he was laid. They did not forget... In the span of from Friday to Sunday. Where their master and their Lord was laid. The only explanation is that he is raised from the dead. But beyond logical arguments. He was seen empirically by all of these people. So the apostles are not liars. Our sin doesn't remain. It is forgiven. Jesus' death is sufficient to forgive us. So on the cross, you remember, Jesus cried out, It is finished. And in the resurrection, the Father echoes from heaven, Indeed, it is finished. God's wrath no longer awaits those who trust in Jesus. It has been satisfied. Jesus is our propitiation. He has satisfied the wrath of God for us. The wrath of God is no longer a future reality for anyone who is trusting in Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 says, For all those trusting in Jesus, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, what about looking pitiful? What about Christians being pitiful? Well, as you and I know, as we hear uh, what the world says, we do know that Christians still look pitiful to the world, don't we? We just look ridiculous—a bunch of people walking around saying that Jesus died and He rose again. People who are clinging to a morality that was laid down in an ancient book—and how could that possibly be relative and relevant in, in the twenty-first century? These people are pitiful. They just want to hold religious guilt over people. Pitiful people, these Christians. Well, we do still look pitiful, but in fact, we are privileged. We've been made right with God, having a hope that transcends this life... And will be realized in the life to come. No matter what. Look, so verse 19. Go back up to verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only. Meaning that if our hope resides in only the events and things that happen in this life. The Christian, because Jesus has been raised from the dead. No matter what the events of this life are. No no matter what it is that tomorrow holds. No matter where it is that... Uh, disease or famine or anything else may reach, no matter what it is that brings disaster to my family, no matter what it is, my hope is not in the circumstances of this life. My hope is not in things going well today. My hope is in the fact that on that day, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and I have hope beyond this life that transcends this life that doesn't take into account the circumstances of this life, that takes into account only the circumstances of Jesus Christ, His death, His resurrection. And beyond all that reversal, the reversal of all those consequences, Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus is the promise of our resurrection. Verse 20 again, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. Of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits is the first portion of crops that would come in from the field. And it's a pointer toward the full harvest to come. So when Paul says that Jesus being raised from the dead is the first fruits. he's meaning to say that not only has he been raised, but his resurrection is a pointer toward a full harvest of resurrection, which actually we read about later in chapter 15 in verses 51 to 55. Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... O death, where is your sting? The resurrection of Jesus points forward to that day when all of us who, as it were, will be planted in the ground, in our coffins, will be raised. That which is perishable is put into the ground and it is raised imperishable, immortal, And death has lost its sting forever." That promise of death without sting, of eternal life, of resurrection, receiving an imperishable body, living with Christ forever in the new heavens and new earth, the promise that we will never die again, it is for all who are in Christ. All who are trusting in Him. That's what verse 22 means. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. The question, friend, is are you (coughs) in Him? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ to save you? Do you see that Jesus died for your sin? Do you believe that God raised Him from the dead on the third day, publicly declaring that His sacrifice is sufficient for your sin? Romans 10.9 says, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see it today? Do you see it for the first time? Are your eyes open to the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, not merely as something that is talked about at this time of year each year, but as something that is a reality for you, that even now you have been awakened to it? We'll praise the Lord for that. Reach out. Send us an email. Let us know about this. We would love to celebrate that with you. We would love to talk with you if you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus. We would love to help you grow in your faith in Jesus Christ. Just send us an email to office at grayroad.com and we will get back to you. Jesus Christ has died and been raised from the dead. Now think back. Consider all those what-ifs I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. The medical what-ifs. The financial what-ifs. The what-ifs that look toward the worst that could happen. Consider the concerns of your life right now, whether they're related to a pandemic or not. For those who've settled the what-if in 1 Corinthians 15... There's no other what-if in this life that can induce fear or hopelessness. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And because of that, we have hope. Because of that, we have eternal life. And because of that, there is nothing, nothing that can change that truth. So then we can and must live, as Paul says, at the end of this chapter, having talked about resurrection for 57 verses, he now finishes this way. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, your labor in for Him, your life trusting in Him is not in vain. Suffering is not in vain. Fighting the good fight of faith is not in vain. Running the race is not in vain. Keeping our eyes on Jesus is not in vain. Freeing ourselves from the sin that so easily entangles is not in vain. Gospel ministry is not in vain. Parenting your children in the Lord is not in vain. Nothing is in vain because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And as we live these steadfast lives in a world of disappointments, as we are immovable in an uncertain world, we can sing, Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future. Life is worth the living just because He lives. Let's pray. Father, we bow before You thankful for the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the assurance that it gives us that our sin is forgiven, that eternal life does away, that Your wrath has been satisfied that we will be raised and glorified to live forever in the new heavens and new earth with you. I pray, Lord, for those for whom these words have only been words to this point. That they will no longer be simply words, but by your Spirit's work in their hearts, these words will be their lifeline, their only hope. That they will look to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That they will find in you a faithful God. We thank you that the circumstances of our life neither reveal nor erase your love for us. We are thankful that your love for us is unchanging Because it is rooted and found most clearly in the death of Jesus for us. And his resurrection echoes with that love even to our hearts today. For that we give you thanks and praise. May this hope be ours, that whatever what ifs may be asked in our hearts or by others, That we would cling to the answer to what if Jesus hasn't been raised. That we would cling to the fact, but Christ has been raised. And that that would give us strength and help and hope today and in the days to come. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this day and in the days to come and forevermore. Amen.